three, two, one. Thanks for joining us here on Kentucky Caliber. We're going to be starting a new segment this week called Around the World in 80 Minutes, modeled on one of my favorite books by Jules Verne, which is Around the World in 80 Days, of course, a fictional story about the character Phileas Fogg who takes a bet uh, to see whether or not he can circumnavigate the globe in 80 days, and if he does, he wins a, a substantial sum of money, which, of course, in the end, he ends up uh, succeeding, even though at first he thought he failed because he forgot that he uh, he crossed the international date line. Anyway, it's a great book, and uh, I just wanted to use that sort of, as a, sort of as a model to try to gain perspective on things that are happening uh, across the world and across the globe. It's easy to get... Um, it's easy to get bogged down on one or two issues and sort of gain, get tunnel vision uh, and forget about other things of importance that are happening because we live in a, a connected world and things that happen in other places affect us whether we, whether we would like it to or not. Um, it's simply a fact that it does. And it's, it's true that the world we live in is, is a very complicated place. There's lots of information available. There's lots of disinformation available and it can be difficult to understand which one, uh, what's real and what isn't, or really just uh, what's going on. But it's not impossible. It's not impossible to understand what's going on. The first step towards understanding is awareness. And that's something that this segment is designed to help. Not supposed to be, uh, it's not designed or intended to be a, a complete or total solution. Just a first step towards gaining the awareness that we need to understand the world that we live in. You know, former President Eisenhower in his book, Waging Peace, which by the way, I think is the, the best book ever written by a, a former president. Anyway, in, in one of the chapters, he made a comment that, quote, few of us can, because of our sketchy information on others, few of us can think globally. And I think that's a point he made in the 1950s, which remains true today. So even despite the uh, enormous advances in technology and the availability of information to each and every one of us, it remains a fact that it's still it's still the uh, quite a task to try to sort out what's real and what isn't, what's valid and what isn't, and from that to try to determine what what things that are happening are of importance or significance that we need to know about to guide our decision making in terms of what we want our government to do or what we would like for private companies to do or what actions that we're taking as private citizens uh, what what uh, their their impact may be in locations other than our own. So with that in mind, we're going to jump right in for the uh, the around the world in 80 minutes. And the first place that we're going to start with, of course, is the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Of course, with uh, respect to that, uh, the situation in Ukraine and the Russian invasion, none of us can say for certain what the Russian objectives truly are. What we can do is say that if they intended regime change, that has failed because the regime in Kyiv is still in place. If they intended to take control of Ukrainian territory, or at least the eastern half of the country, that has failed because the, most of that countryside still remains in Ukrainian hands. If they intended to be welcomed as liberators or greeted as heroes, uh, freeing them from their fictitious claims of Nazi rule, that has failed because the Ukrainian people have displayed an enormous spirit of unity and resolve in resisting the Russian invasion. And, and they've done it effectively, too. It's not just a, um, a, a fighting spirit. They've also been well-coordinated, and partly thanks to supplies from the, from the West, including the United States and Europe, they've been well-armed, and they've been able to take on the, the mechanized invasion that Russia launched over a month ago very effectively. 
they've used technology in ways that we have not seen in other conflicts. And so this this particular invasion has been called a TikTok war, but that really just scratches the surface of the changes that we're seeing and the differences in this conflict compared to others. For example, this being a large-scale ground invasion with a large mechanized force in terms of the, the theater that it's in, in, in Asia, or the Eurasian theater, however you want to think of it, it's the largest such action, the largest such military action since the end of World War II. But this time, the folks that are being attacked and that are being invaded have weapons that previous victims did not. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. First of all, drone technology has come a long way, even in the past 10, 15 years, and it's being used very effectively by Ukrainians to offset Russia's superior uh, advantage in, in firepower, because Russia clearly has that. With their numbers, the number of tanks, the number of armored personnel carriers, helicopters, and jets, they have a firepower advantage over Ukraine, and they have a numerical advantage, although only a slight one, in the actual country itself. So they have numbers and they have firepower, but the Ukrainian military and civilians that have just stepped up and, and are fighting alongside the Ukrainians are using technology in ways that, that we haven't seen before. And the, the most significant of those are to the use of anti-tank weapons, which are shoulder-carried. These are either Javelin missiles or in-laws from the, the United Kingdom, which enables one, one individual or one soldier to carry a projectile, which is basically a rocket they fire, and that it's capable of taking out a tank or an armored vehicle. The same is true of the drones, including the new switchblades that the United States has sent, which enables a single or, or just a couple of individuals operating them, whether they're military or, or civilians working with the Ukrainian military. So we have firepower in the hands of individuals, new, that very numerous. There's a lot of those weapons around. There's a lot of javelins. There's a lot of in-laws. There's a lot of drones. And so they've been able to blunt the advance of the Russian military, and particularly their mechanized units, by targeting not only their fuel trucks, which has been successful in slowing down the invading force itself, but also in taking out the heavier pieces of equipment, such as tanks, armored personnel carriers, and in the air uh, with Stinger missiles, which is another shoulder-fired missile, uh, helicopters, and, uh, and even fighter jets. So we've seen in this war the ability of individual combatants to destroy large pieces of equipment uh, that we have not seen on a scale that we have not seen in previous conflicts. We've also seen technology playing a significant role in terms of communication, not just amongst the Ukrainian people themselves, but also in how people directly involved in the conflict who are combatants communicate with the outside world. For example, we have members not only of the Ukrainian military, but also civilians using internet access provided by Starlink, which is a company or a project by Elon Musk, a private, a private individual, a private company, providing internet access that enables the Ukrainian military to more effectively target, to use their drones in targeting Russian tanks, but also to communicate and to speak to the outside world in the form of videos. And there's a lot of footage out there coming from Ukraine or purporting to be from Ukraine. Of course, we realize that, that there's also a lot of counterfeit and misinformation out there. There's a lot of videos that are not authentic, and there's so many being posted just on a daily basis that it takes time for digital forensics experts such as those for the at the Center for Information Resilience or the, the Digital Forensics Lab with the Atlantic Council and others. There's there's plenty of others out there too. It takes time to, to validate and authenticate what videos are appear to be real and which ones are not. 
but the role of spreading so much combat footage so quickly through the use of either social media or handheld uh, mobile devices has been done to an extent in the Ukrainian theater that we have not seen in, in previous conflicts. And finally, we have other, other non-government organizations like Anonymous who have openly declared a cyber war on Russia and have used their computer skills and their hacking skills to release state secrets and have threatened to do, do so uh, on a larger scale as, as time goes on by hacking Russia's central bank and their government and posting those files on the internet for individuals to read. So that poses an operational security risk for the Russian government, whose soldiers, by the way, have already been using communications devices that have been compromised, and that has contributed to the ability of Ukrainian forces to figure out where they are, what they're doing, because that's, that's a, a first a priority of business if you're trying to target an enemy invader. You have to know where they are. And so if, if they're using communications devices that are not secure, in other words, they're just open. Anybody who's listening can, can, can hear what you're saying. That helps gather a very vital intelligence on where those forces are, what they're doing, and that enables uh, Ukrainian forces uh, or, or their forces fighting on their behalf to target Russian, uh, Russian military pieces of equipment or convoys or even troop formations <clears throat> excuse me, much more quickly and effectively. And so we've seen that as this conflict has played out over the past 30 days. Russia has been more effective in gaining control of areas that are close to its own borders, but the further that supply chain stretches, the more vulnerable it becomes to attacks uh, of the type that I've just described from Ukrainian forces using drones or using shoulder-fired tank weapons to disable, stop, or even destroy uh, significant portions of the mechanized invasion force. So whether diplomacy can resolve that situation right now remains an unknown. There have been a few changes. Russia seems to have indicated, at least according to Israel's prime minister, that they're willing to back down on some of their initial demands. They're no longer demanding that the regime be changed in Kyiv. They're no longer demanding that Ukraine completely demilitarize, which is, of course, a small a small change, but nonetheless, it, it represents a difference from their original position. And we've heard some comments from Ukraine's president as well that they're, they may be open to the idea that Ukraine doesn't want to formally join NATO, which was a key Russian demand. So diplomacy isn't completely dead. Um, it hasn't made any real progress towards a, uh, a peaceful solution or stopping the uh, ongoing hostilities. But they are still talking. And so even a small change like that uh, could be just a glimmer of hope, just the door being cracked wide enough for us to see a little bit of daylight on the other side. And in the meantime, of course, the reaction of our European allies has been the most notable difference. In uh, quickly, opinions have changed across Europe in terms of how to support or what we sh what should be done in order to help the Ukrainians. C countries that had not been open to sending military aid previously are now actively doing so. Most specifically, I'm thinking of Germany, and they are sending weapons to Ukraine as well. In fact, there are 32 countries right now that are openly and actively sending weapons to help the Ukrainians fight the Russian invasion. Most uh, outside the uh, the country of Ukraine itself, the, the country most impacted is almost certainly Poland, who is seeing an enormous refugee surge through their uh, border with Ukraine, which is several hundred miles long. And of course, Poland has always been a top destination for Ukrainian travelers who wanted to go to Europe anyway. 
Poland and Ukraine share some linguistic similarities and some cultural similarities. So at the moment, there's a very welcoming attitude towards refugees uh, in Poland. But they have so much, their numbers are so huge that it's unlikely they'll be able to sustain a, uh, a, that, that many people in their borders for a, a very long period of time. That will become very expensive and very difficult. And of course, you always have to wonder how long will that welcome mat remain? There are far-right groups in Poland, just like there are in Ukraine and, and other places, who are dead set against having immigrants in their country. So the potential for either protests, demonstrations, or even violent unrest to be sparked as this goes on is something that I'm sure the Polish government and Polish authorities are, are watching very closely. For the moment, it's a welcome situation, but that may not last. And the conflict, unfortunately, in Ukraine shows no signs of abating as of the uh, the last week of March here. But we can say that Russia has failed to accomplish pretty much all of its objectives in the first month of fighting. And whether that will change their minds at the negotiating table is something that we'll just have to watch in the future. Turning our attention to the uh, Asia-Pacific region, this week, according to a report from the South China Morning Post, which is an English-speaking newspaper and publication located in Hong Kong, according to the South China Morning Post, there is a secret, or in the works, is a secret agreement between China and the Solomon Islands, which would allow the Solomon Islands to request China to send not just police, but also military personnel and armed forces to the Solomon Islands to assist with, quote, maintaining social order. An English-speaking copy of that proposed agreement was posted, and it does say draft, was posted by Dr. Anna Powells, who's a professor at the, in New Zealand of international security, and you can read through the text of the uh, the draft, which is pretty short. But um, for those who aren't familiar, there, there's a couple of reasons why this has the potential to be significant news for that region. First of all, the Solomon Islands are not far. They're just off the northeastern coast of Australia. So in geographic terms, that would be right on Australia's uh, doorstep. So the potential for Chinese military forces to be present even in small numbers, or if they were to expand up to a large enough group to build a base of operations, right on uh, Australia's front door would be very troubling to our Australian friends, who is a, an American ally. It would also be the furthest east that Chinese forces had ever pushed in expanding their uh, growing influence across the Pacific region, which they, which they intentionally try to do. You know, in China, their east coast uh, is the Pacific Ocean, and they would like to extend their reach as far as possible out across that very vast region for a number of reasons. It's a huge shipping lane, so a lot of the world's goods and services pass, a lot of, excuse me, a lot of uh, the world's shipping goods pass through there. And so whoever has the ability to control that has a lot of leverage over global shipping. For those who aren't familiar with the history, the Solomon Islands are also home to Guadalcanal. And Guadalcanal was the site of a major battle between U.S. and Japanese forces, 1942 and 1943. Not just uh, naval forces, but also land forces. And the ground forces that fought each other uh, in the jungles of Guadalcanal became the stuff of uh, not just historical study, but also sort of legend. If you've ever read Norman Mailer's uh, book on World War II, The Naked and the Dead, he wrote about a fictional island, but if you if you studied the uh, the situation in Guadalcanal from a historical point of view, it seems pretty clear he based at least some of the setting and some of the the scenery on Guadalcanal itself. So the area itself is uh, is of historical significance, of course, to the United States. The reason why the Solomon Islands were proposing this 
arrangement or agreement with, with China has to do with internal domestic disputes that have been going on within the Solomon Islands dating back many years now. And typically, most recently, a, a couple of years ago, there were some, there's, and, and last year most recently, there were some protests and violent riots that broke out leading to a lot of property damage, death and, and destruction there. And Australia sent police forces and, and uh, security forces to help stabilize the situation. But now it appears that the Solomon Islands authorities are trying to get China's help in order to bring in Chinese forces to continue to crack down on unrest and protests. The specifics of those have to do with a, a lot of different factors, one of which is the concentration of economic production on Guadalcanal itself, which is the, the largest of the Solomon Islands, and the deliberate exclusion of other surrounding islanders from those economic uh, resources and revenue streams. So essentially they're keeping those folks from having access to any of the money-making or jobs that come with the, the foreign investment that you see on Guadalcanal. And so naturally people get angry and they come and they protest. And, then, and even last year they demanded that the, the current regime uh, be removed. And so that regime itself is looking for friends and of course they, they found one in China who sees an opportunity to extend their own power and influence right up to Australia's doorstep uh, by taking advantage of that situation there on the Solomon Islands. And China, of course, has been watching the situation in Ukraine with much interest. You know, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was predicated on a claim that Ukraine is actually Russian territory. Now, we know it's not, that's not true, but that's, how, but that's the claim that's being made by Russia. In a very similar way that China claims Taiwan is actually a part of China and not an independent nation. So when China agreed to support Russia in its invasion, not directly, but at least uh, indirectly, um, when they agreed to support them publicly in their invasion of Ukraine, I think China had a lot to gain from that, specifically by using it as a test case to see how the world might respond to a full-scale military takeover of a piece of territory under the claim that that territory was, was really yours anyway and the independence was illegal. And what China has seen, I think, has surprised them in terms of the economic sanctions. The, the, the speed and the scale of the sanctions on a global level that have been leveled against Russia have been very devastating to Russia's economy. Now, China, excuse me, China is a little bit of a, a different situation because, at least in terms of, of the United States and Europe, the portfolio, the size of the exposure and investments in China is many times larger than is the case in Russia. I think in the S&P 500, maybe two of those com companies have more than a quarter of their uh, portfolio or their revenue based in Russia. Very, very few. Whereas uh, in China, there's quite a bit more, a lot more investment, a lot more money to be made, <clears throat> and a lot more uh, economic risk to be taken. But still, China is aware that the, the world has responded very quickly in imposing sanctions against Russia. They've been very devastating to Russia's economy. And world opinion, for the most part, has united against Russia. So those are lessons that China has learned even as they continue to try to expand their own influence throughout the eastern uh, portion of the Pacific region. And of course, while we're looking at things that have happened in the Asia-Pacific region, recently South Korea elected a new president, Yoon Suk-yeol, a conservative who has promised to take a tougher line against neighboring North Korea. Sometimes in the United States we have a tendency to present anything that happens in the world uh, through the lens of our own interests and our own, uh, our own personality as a nation. That means we think anytime someone does something, it has to be in response to something that we did. But we sometimes forget, and this is a good example, the, the Korean example is, is a good way to illustrate this, that sometimes 
that's not the case. In fact, a lot of times that's not the case. And so recently when we saw a new missile launch from North Korea, this was not, as American commentators have put it, a message to the United States. Quite the contrary, it was a message to South Korea and their newly elected president who has promised to take a tougher line against Kim Jong-un's regime. But there's something else you may not know about South Korea's new president. He is being called the world's first deep fake president. A couple of weeks ago uh, in Ukraine, a similar phenomenon happened where hackers posted a deep fake video, which is an artificially created synthetic image that looks and sounds like the person being depicted, even though it isn't. It's a, it's a pure construct. They posted a, a, an image and video online, which was fake, of President Zelensky telling Ukrainian forces to surrender. Well, in the South Korean case, it's not his opponents who have been putting deep fake videos, but the candidate and his team themselves who were behind it. They specifically designed this not to be unflattering or derogatory, but just the opposite, to be more complimentary and to be more praiseworthy and to be more appealing, especially to younger voters in South Korea who consume a lot of their information online through electronic media. This particular deep fake of Yoon Suk-yul made him look a little bit younger, a little bit more well-dressed, and made him sound a little bit cooler to potential voters. So it's, it's really an astonishing and probably the first that I can think of instance where the candidate themselves has posted a synthetic or an artificial image of their own, of their own likeness in order to gain appeal. And as we can see from the results of this election, it appears to have worked. Yun Suk Yul won a closely contested race, but he did win a clear and concisive victory, so he will be the new president of South Korea. And that will be in part thanks to the technical savvy of his team in presenting their candidate through a deep fake algorithm, which voters apparently in South Korea found to be not only convincing, but appealing. Of course, South Korea is one of the world's largest economies. I think it's like the fourth largest economy in Asia, and so any potential conflict there would have enormous global ramifications. People in South Korea by now are pretty well used to the threat coming from North Korea, so when North Korea launches a missile or issues a rhetoric of, of a bellicose nature threatening either them or the United States, for the most part people in South Korea just shrug and then go about their business, even though they're very close to a real and present threat from North Korea. The fact is, they've been living that way for so long that it's sort of just part of life now. And oftentimes, North Korean actions or statements get more attention in the United States and more of a reaction in the United States than they do, in, uh, than they do from South Koreans. So the new president will take office and we'll see how he responds and continues to develop a new policy towards North Korea. But his victory using modern technology makes him noteworthy. Of course, here in the United States, it's an election year. There are national elections this year in 2022. We're still coping with the pandemic and the changes that the pandemic have brought, which include, and I'll get to that in just a second, some pretty significant economic consequences. We've got rising prices. And now, of course, in addition to those, uh, those issues that we're already coping with, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has changed or threatens to change the, the way the United States conducts its or views its foreign policy towards Europe and Russia. Of course, the pandemic is not over, and but most people, thank goodness, the, the vaccination numbers here in the United States have gone up. We're around 66%, according to the CDC, who have received at least two doses, so that counts as fully vaccinated, 
and over 70%, close to 77%, I think, of their latest data have received at least one shot of a vaccine. So those numbers, even though it's taken a very long time, are still good. They're still good contributors to slowing the spread and most importantly, to decreasing the severity of illness for those who contract the novel coronavirus. Of course, you know, we should remember the purpose of a vaccine is not to give you complete uh, immunity to the virus. It's to make you get less sick if you come into contact with it uh, and get infected. So rather than getting hospitalized or put on a ventilator, you just get mild symptoms or, or cold-like symptoms, which is a, a huge difference. And they also tend not to last quite as long. So vaccines work. They make a difference. They matter. And finally, though it's taken a long time, more people have have gotten their shots. There are other hot spots around the world that are still flaring up, as we've seen even in China, in Shanghai, which is a, a, a very populated, very densely populated metropolis. Uh, the numbers have gone up to a point where the Chinese authorities are once again imposing, imposing much more stricter uh, lockdown style measures, which here in the United States have abated. Those have sort of gone away, and people have try, are trying to move back towards sort of a normal pre-pandemic mode of life in terms of just social activity or even economic activity. But despite some good news uh, on the pandemic front, there have been and are likely to be lasting changes to our economy. And we're seeing that play out here in the United States with the tussle over remote work and whether it's here to stay or whether it was just temporary. A lot of workers are very, very keen on maintaining at least some remote work while employers seem to be more geared towards getting people back into a physical office. And so there's a, a give and take there that's going to have to be worked out in the marketplace. And the most likely outcome will be, and we're already seeing this in, in many places, is a sort of hybrid arrangement where folks come into an office for a couple of days and they're allowed to work remotely for the remainder of the time. And in addition to the, the remote work challenge, there's also what has been called the great resignation or the great reshuffling which are folks leaving their jobs and looking for new employment. A lot of that has to do with, if you look at them, if you dig really deeply into the numbers, you'll see that, that quite a few folks in, in that situation were close to retirement age. And so many of those have simply decided, okay, I'm close enough to retirement, I'm just going to go ahead and pull the trigger early. And so that's one of the reasons why folks who did that, those folks are not coming back into the workforce because they went ahead and retired. Another reason, another, another, uh, dynamic, uh, rather, that we see play out in this, are folks who left work but found a better job or just completely changed careers and completely changed the direction of their career and found something completely different. And so that's something that, that nobody who studies economics, whether it's academia or in the business world, very few would have predicted that one of the consequences of a pandemic would be, well, f somebody who yesterday worked as an accountant now wants to work in some completely other, uh, in an artistic or a creative career field or, or whatever, that's completely unrelated to what they were doing beforehand. And so this is, it's the and the, the reason for that is pretty easy to understand. You know, being locked down and having a lot of time on their hands, a lot of people use that time for self-reflection and evaluation. And they've decided that the, the way that their life was going or the way their career was going, not really the way they wanted it to go. And so they've sort of used this crisis as an opportunity to change the direction uh, of their career and therefore to change employment, employers, uh, or both. And that we have seen has caused a lot of upheaval in the economy itself. And so I, I think that undercuts the claims that are made that 
a lot of the, the, the workforce changes we've seen are simply due to people who don't want to work or who have left the workforce simply because they can remain on benefits. Well, most of those benefits are gone now and have been for some time. And, and so that argument, I think, has is, is pretty much been completely discredited now. It's not that people don't want to work. It's that they're looking for different kinds of work. And they're looking for different ways to carry that work or to do that work. And so these types of changes have been very rapid and very far-reaching. And so it's, it's difficult for everyone to deal with them. Uh, you know, employers are trying to find work. Workers, workers are trying to find work. And, and so we're still in a period of inst economic instability due to that fact. And there's really no one thing the government can do to change that or to bring it back into, uh, into balance. It's just going to have to be something that the market and employers and employees or workers come to some sort of agreement on. And I would expect that to take time. The, the ramifications from an upheaval as great as, as the, the pandemic are just going to take months or even years to sort themselves out and we're just going to have to have some strategic patience as that process plays out. With respect to the elections here in the United States, of course, the debate goes on about what best or how best the United States should respond to the Russian invasion uh, in terms of foreign policy and domestic policy at the moment here in March. The Supreme Court nomination of Ketanji Brown Jackson is one of the things that is the front and center in terms of our, our political environment and whether or not the votes are there to confirm her as a nominee with Joe Manchin of West Virginia signaling that he will vote yes to confirm that would seem to indicate that she does have the votes to to gain nomination even if there's a 50-50 tie in the Senate the vice president what would break the tie on her behalf and all that's needed for confirmation is a simple majority so a 51 to 50 vote would count and that would be sufficient during the course of the nomination, of course, you know, those of us who can remember back to when Clarence Thomas was nominated for the Supreme Court, there is almost always a, a large amount of attention uh, devoted to Supreme Court hearings and confirmation hearings, and, and rightfully so. You have individuals who are going to be appointed for life, and, and at the time of appointment, many of these folks are, are, are fairly young, as this nominee is, and so you're looking at someone who's going to be on the bench for a very long time, decades, most likely. And so it's understandable, and, and, it's, and it's good that we pay, pay so much attention to, to who the nominees are, what their backgrounds are, and uh, what kind of uh, Supreme Court justice we think that they might, uh, they might be based on their, their record. Of course, the, the questioning also tends to become a political circus, which has already been the case with this hearing, and that, that's not unusual or unique. It, it was the case for almost all of the previous uh, nominees to the Supreme Court, and I would expect to see that continue uh, in the future. But it looks like that uh, this nominee will be done. The The claims that have been brought up uh, by critics or those who have claimed that they want to vote no tend to rest on the types of issues that really um, are exaggerated. The, uh, the role of critical race theory, for example, which Republicans continue to bring up, it isn't taught in secondary schools, so their efforts to portray it as some kind of uh, threat to education, at least in a secondary level, I just have no substantive basis in fact. Uh, critical race theory is taught a little bit in, in, at the postgraduate level in, in some universities and it's it has its supporters and it has its critics uh, in academia so the, the claim that academia is somehow uh, united in support of this framework of thought is untrue. Uh, it has uh, just as many critics as it does supporters so any claims that it's it's taken over higher education uh, are also unfounded and, and untrue. But that's the that's the way that the, the critics have, have played this. They've tried to portray her as someone who has promoted or supported 
uh, critical race theory or who has been soft on, on certain types of criminals. And, and those statements have been made uh, almost entirely just to, to smear her name or to create doubt uh, as to the legitimacy of future decisions that she'll be making once the confirmation process has been completed which will play itself out here shortly. And, and the election will go on, and once that confirmation has taken place, there will be other issues that uh, domestic politics in the United States will return to. You know, the high prices are, are certainly worthy of discussion. Why are, have costs gone up so much? Well, part of that, a big part of that, is in response to the pandemic, which caused a number of problems. It caused not only a dislocation or, or a lot of um, firing of, of employees, it also caused... Uh, as I mentioned earlier, those to shift and the way people do business has changed. There have been logistics problems, there's employee problems, there's supply and demand issues where consumer behavior significantly changed. And it's still in the process of either changing back to what it was or changing into something completely new post-pandemic. And so we're going to have to wait and see what that is. But it's certainly true that, that prices have gone up and, and the energy sector is just one example. Um, you know, you had for a long time with the lockdown, much less travel. And then all of a sudden people going back to sort of pre-pandemic travel norms, you'll have an increase in demand without a corresponding increase in supply. So basic economics tells you when those two things come together, prices go up. And that's what we've seen happen. There's also a strong argument to be made that companies have simply exploited the, the crisis or the pandemic conditions uh, to get a money grab, to raise prices just because they can under the cover of some of those other legitimate issues that I mentioned. And I think that's also true, that they've done that uh, just to increase their profits. And you can see that uh, almost across the board with uh, not just in the energy sector, but with companies that who have made a lot of money in the, in the pandemic economy continue to do so and they don't want to lose those profits. So the, the claims that there is profiteering going on due to the pandemic, I think, have a lot of substance. So that's another reason why prices have gone up. And, and I think during an election, we tend to lose sight of the fact that the government is not all powerful. Neither is the president. Neither, neither President Donald Trump nor President Joe Biden controls the economy. Neither one of them controls fuel prices. They don't control how much gas costs um, at the pump when you go to fill up. Can they influence those prices? Absolutely they can. And the policies that they choose to do so are fair game uh, in an election year. But when we only look to, to one individual uh, as the reason for why prices are going up or down, we've really lost sight of how the economy works and the impact of not only the pandemic, but also world events, including the, the Russian invasion most recently, and how those have an impact on, on the global market and on the prices that we, we see in the store when we go to buy whatever goods that we need. So the global, the global changes that we've seen are the reason why prices have gone up along with, I think, uh, profiteering uh, in the private sector. It's not just related to uh, the government. Hopefully during the, an election year, uh, those facts will come out, even though there will be a lot of, a lot of parties who have their own political interest to paint their opponents as the, the sole reason for why prices have gone up. And we, we see that too in, in every election that that happens and I expect it will happen uh, in this one but I hope folks remember that there's a much bigger picture out there and that there are reasons why that prices have gone up that aren't just related to politics and sometimes it's easy when we talk about the the things that are going on across the world whether it's rising fuel prices 
or like the, the wars, like the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, or political contest. Sometimes we forget that that's not all that's going on in the world. And so we want to turn for just a, a little bit to Egypt, where we have some good news of a rather astonishing discovery that just took place outside of Saqqara. According to the Egyptian Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities, five very well-preserved tombs were found, and these date to over 4,200 years ago. And they were all unearthed near, near a pyramid at Saqqara. They contain both hieroglyphic inscriptions and a lot of imagery. And if you look at some of the pictures, if someone had shown you that image, you could have thought that, that, that those hieroglyphics and the images had been drawn recently. You know, to find something this well preserved is very rare. The pictures themselves look like they were just drawn. So the fact that they've been sitting there for, for over 4,000 years untouched and there's hardly any loss of, of coloration or imagery, they, ha they haven't faded, they haven't been damaged. It's just really, I've never seen one quite this, uh, quite this well preserved when it comes to um, the find. According to the, uh, the same Ministry of Tourism and Antiquities in Egypt, these, specific, spe these particular tombs go back to the 6th dynasty which is what they call the, uh, the first intermediate period. That's somewhere around 2,000 years ago. And this, this will help uh, give Egypt a boost, not only in terms of, of tourism, because they're planning to open what's called the GEM, the G-E-M, the Grand Egyptian Museum. And this is a, a planned museum. It's been worked on for many years now. And it's finally supposed to open this November of 2022 just outside of Cairo on the Giza Plaza, uh, Plateau, uh, not far from the pyramids. And it's being advertised as the, the quote, crown jewel of Egypt. And if you take a look at some of the, the pictures that are already available of the, the structure itself, which the outside of the structure is pretty well complete, it's, it's really an impressive and stunning structure. It, it looks like something that's on par with the Louvre or the Smithsonian. It's just a, a massive, very eye-catching kind of structure that will house very comprehensive layouts uh, of Egyptian history, including, of course, the history of the pharaohs, which goes back many thousands of years. So it's an enormous structure. You could probably spend days walking around and, and not see all of it, but it will be really a, a spectacular draw when that's finished. And if it actually does open on time this November, it would be uh, something you would want to add to your bucket list. I think it's, it's that kind of uh, destination. So along with that, that very exciting discovery in Saqqara, there's the potential for the new uh, GEM, the new gem of Egypt to open, uh, coming hopefully uh, this November. And I hope everyone can put that on their, uh, their tourist destination list. And so just like that, we're almost halfway through the 80 minutes. And we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about some technology and the way technology has, is poised to change some of the basic things that we have come to expect in our world. Driving a car is one of those, and the technology and the spread of potential technology for self-driving vehicles has really taken off in the past few years, and I wanted to take just a few moments to talk about some recent developments in that area. But first, you know, we need to think about why would companies, or anyone really, want to have a car that doesn't have a driver? Well, there's, there's a couple of reasons. One reason is safety related. According to the, in the United States, according to the National Highway Transportation and Safety Administration, 95% of car crashes in the United States, 95% are due to human error. Now, they recognize that, that weather conditions or mechanical failures, you know, those type of things definitely contribute. But on the whole, a whopping 95% of car crashes in the United States are caused 
by human error. So it makes sense, excuse me, it makes sense that companies who make the cars would want to look for ways to try to reduce those errors if they could, possibly all the way to zero. And there's other reasons that you might want to have a self-driving vehicle. If you're on a long trip and you have a, a long stretch of highway where there's not much going on, the, the workload can be, it can become very boring or tiring for a human driver. So you could switch over to let the, uh, the car handle those portions of the trip while you could rest. For folks who may have a, a physical disability or who may, due to medical conditions or age, no longer be able to safely operate, a motor vehicle, a self-driving car is a nice solution. But really, I think the biggest the biggest reason that's driving it is just simply consumer demand. And that's what you find with most new products. People just want one. We just want a car that can drive itself. And so we can add all those other reasons in there, when they're, and they're valid. But, but basically, the potential for human beings to just have a car that drives itself is the largest impetus behind this. And, and truly, if you look at the technical definition, there are no self-driving cars currently on the roads anywhere. According to the Society for Automotive Engineers, there's a scale that goes from one to five. And a level five is a, is a car that can drive itself completely. It can handle any conditions that a human can handle, whether it's in an urban environment in the city, whether it's in a rural environment in the countryside or in between, whatever the challenge is, a level five car can do everything a human can do. So far, nobody has claimed to get to that standard. They do, however, many companies, whether it's Mercedes-Benz in Germany or Honda in Japan or GM and Toyota here in the United States, those companies do claim that they have engineered a level four vehicle. And according to that scale, this is a car that can operate without a human driver for brief or limited periods of time under specified conditions. So in other words, a level four can handle, see if you're going out, like if you've ever driven out in Texas, which I have, I used to, I was stationed out there a long time ago, out in the western part of the state, you get on Interstate 10, and it's just it's just a straight road for miles and miles and hours, and, and you don't hardly pass anything or come to very many uh, obstacles or turns or anything like that. It's just a straight shot that goes on and on. So it would be pretty nice in that situation to just click on the, uh, the old uh, self-driving feature and let the computer drive that car while you're on those large straight stretches uh, for large periods of time. So Level 4 can do that. And, and we've already been testing uh, commercial trucks that haul freight. As you know, there's a, there's a pretty significant shortage of drivers in the trucking industry. And, and not to get into a sidebar, but there's some good reasons for that. You know, the, the industry ha doesn't do a good job of taking care of its drivers. They're overworked. They're underpaid. Sometimes they're forced to wait for pickup of whatever they're hauling for hours and even days without being compensated for that weight. That's not actually part of their drive time. And they're also monitored very closely. You can have, there are some trucks out there where truck drivers will tell you, if you look away from the road for just a minute, you can get a demerit or you can get a, a penalty from the computer system that's monitoring your body and your every move. So it's, it's very, they're under a lot of surveillance in addition to the pressure that they're under uh, to deliver goods on time under, under difficult conditions when they're already exhausted. And so that, by the way, is a big reason why there have been trucker protests. The mass, the, or excuse me, not the mass mandate, but rather the vaccine mandate was just the last straw for a lot of truckers who, who rightly feel that they're already being mistreated. I, I'm a big proponent of people getting vaccinated. I fully support that. But I understand why, under the conditions that, that human truckers have to operate under, that this was the last straw for them and, and for the, in their mind that this was the last, the last thing that they could stand and they're upset and they're protesting. So companies have looked at all that and they've decided, well, you know, can we field self-driving 
uh, semi-trucks that haul freight or commerce or goods uh, across the country or, or around the world, and those are already being tested. They're also being looked at for consumers. According to Motor Authority, Toyota and Aurora have rolled out a fleet of prototypes for those vehicles, and they're being tested in Dallas-Fort Worth. should be noted that those vehicles have a human driver at all times behind the wheel, even though the human driver is not always operating that vehicle. Sometimes the software is running the vehicle, but there still, right now, is a human being there, so people don't have to worry about uh, getting run over or getting hit by a car that doesn't have a human in it uh, in that environment. Also, General Motors and the self-driving uh, company Cruise, um, according to Freethink here, this year have asked regulators to deploy what they call a, a, an autonomous vehicle called Cruise Origin, which has no steering wheel, no rearview mirrors, or pedals. This would be a theoretical, what they want to get to with is an actual level five vehicle that would simply, you get in, you tell it where you want to go, or you pre-program it, and the vehicle does all the work. The human is just a passenger. They're not, uh, they're not driving at all. The idea shouldn't seem too far-fetched or too counterintuitive. After all, we've just seen with Blue Origin, human beings be sent into space where the, 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 the human occupants of the rocket ship were not driving or steering or controlling the rocket at all. They were purely passengers. So from an engineering standpoint, if it's possible to get human beings into space where the human is just a passenger, it's, it's at least theoretically possible that we could engineer cars that can do the same thing, that can, where, where the human is just a passenger and where people can go from A to B uh, without having to worry about operating the controls. And so there's plenty of potential benefits to that arrangement. Obviously, if you have a car driving and the passengers are intoxicated, it won't have any impact on the performance of the vehicle because the vehicle because you know computers don't get drunk. And so you have the potential to eliminate a lot of those human errors that are responsible for crashes which injure and kill thousands of people in the United States um, every year. So there are some, some good potential benefits. Of course, there are also concerns, and people are right to voice those concerns, and, and the makers of autonomous vehicles recognize those problems. We don't want vehicles that are being operated by a computer where there's a, a malfunction or a glitch that can also cause additional crashes or, or where there was injuries or deaths to human beings. So, of course, we're, we're still a long ways from getting to a, a situation where you could just go to your car dealer, buy a, a level five vehicle, and, and you can tell it where you want to go and you can sit back and you don't have to do anything. We're still a ways from that, but we're taking steps in that direction. And the tests that are currently ongoing both here in the United States and in Europe and in Asia are gathering the data that will be needed to move us closer to a world where you can do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm a big supporter of it. I think it's a great idea. I think it's a way for folks who have, to, who have long commutes every day, just imagine you could actually start doing work or you could just listen to music or you could relax. You could use that time to do whatever you wanted to do rather than having to focus on the repetitive task of, of driving the vehicle through the same road and through the same turns and through the same stoplights over and over and over again. We could just turn that over to a computer or to the artificial intelligence program that's operating the vehicle. So I hope it's successful. The tests that we're, that we're doing are, are going to get us there, I think, eventually, although it may take a long time. I don't think anyone should think that it's going to be within the next year or two, or even the next five years, maybe, that we get to a level five self-driving vehicle. But I do think it's theoretically possible, and that the data gathered from the ongoing tests are going to help get us in that direction. So that's fascinating. You know, when I was growing up, those of us who grew up in the 80s, where we watched uh, cartoons like the Jetsons, 
uh, we'll be seeing things like a, a car that would just pick you up and take you to where you wanted to go. That was the stuff of pure science fiction. Like it was purely notional, purely our imagination. Did we ever think we would have uh, something like that? But today, despite all the, the upheaval that's going on in the world, despite all the conflicts, there's still scientific innovation going on. There's still progress going on in creating both new ways of transportation and new technologies needed to support that. So those are things we can keep an eye on as they roll forward in the future. Don't be too surprised if you were, if you live in, especially if you live in a big city or a large urban center, don't be too surprised if you ever see one of those vehicles go by on, that has the uh, the wording on the side, either from Waymo or Toyota or GM, um, where you have a, a semi-autonomous vehicle that are being tested in your backyard, because those tests, I think, are going to eventually get us to the point where we will have a self-driving car. And, and it's just fascinating that we're that people are still able to do that, even with all the things that are going on in the world, we're still able to innovate and drive development towards some exciting new products and, and new technologies. So if you did have extra time on your hands, if we did theoretically someday get to the point where you had a vehicle that was capable of level five self-driving and could handle all the functions, what would you do with all that extra time if you didn't want to do some sort of work or, or job-related task? And another car maker, Audi, uh, according to hotcars.com, claims they have the answer. And I've seen this before in some other scenarios. It was first, this was first rolled out in the uh, Consumer Electronics Show back in, I think, 20, either 2019 or 2020. Um, anyway, Audi has a, a VR virtual reality headset that, that can, is paired with the vehicle. And the way it works is uh, the service is called Holoride. And when the person sitting in the back seat of the car puts their virtual reality headset on, the movement of the vehicle is mirrored inside the headset, except it's done through different backgrounds or different games or different, different applications. So, for example, if you're going through an adventure uh, either, uh, either on a... Um, either through a jungle or through a um, the Arctic or some other adventurous type of setting in the headset environment, in the virtual environment. When your car turns right, you will also make a right turn in the virtual environment. So it's sort of a, a blending or a combination of virtual reality and the real world. So the motion of the car will activate and change the way the, uh, the virtual reality headset, the, the image presented to the wearer, uh, looks inside the uh, inside the game or the experience, and these have really come virtual reality. The headsets have really come a long way, uh, just in the past uh, five or six years. You know, several years ago, I think around 2015 or 2016, companies that were making these made some claims about the the quality of the uh, visuals presented by the headsets and the the technology of the pieces of equipment that they first issued and first put on sale really didn't live up to the hype. It really didn't live up to the claims that they were making. And so that created a little bit of distrust amongst the public and amongst consumers as to whether or not virtual reality would ever really get to where the manufacturers claimed it would. But the good news is that today in 2020, and even last year in 2021, the headsets that you can purchase uh, for a reasonable price most of them can be, some of the ones, even the Oculus, for example, you can get for $200. So that's a very reasonably priced piece of equipment, far less than, than other uh, gaming consoles and, and headsets have applications that go beyond gaming. But anyway, so the, the new headsets really do deliver on the quality of an immersive experience that you can get into when you wear them. And so to see this kind of technology paired with automobiles opens up some new possibilities for the future when it comes to taking a, a trip or even uh, going on a, on a shorter distance drive in, a, in an urban environment where you could put on a virtual reality headset and 
experience something that's that's paired to or mirrored with the actual uh, physical world that you're traveling through. It's pretty amazing. And the virtual reality tech itself, in addition to providing improved visuals, has also moved into new realms where you can actually feel, or it's simulated feel, what we call haptic. And there are haptic gloves that you can put on that will simulate the pressures that your hands would feel if they were trying to grasp an object. So, for example, if you want to pick up a baseball, like if you were going outside to play and you picked up a baseball, that, that ball would have a certain feel in your hand. The haptic gear can't simulate the weight of the ball, but it can simulate the contours and the pressure so that when you squeeze your hand as you would around the ball, the sensors will generate a friction or resistance at just the right points uh, on the glove to make your hand think that it's holding a baseball. And this has a lot of applications beyond just gaming and sports. It has the potential, and some folks are already using this, for people who build machines or who operate machinery or even surgeons who want to practice surgery without a cadaver, you can do that in a virtual environment with a lot of advantages. You know, cadavers are expensive. They have to be purchased and stored, and then once you use one, you only get so many so many attempts on it before you have to get a new one. Well, in a virtual environment, which is essentially just a simulator, you could practice that, that particular surgical technique over and over and over again. You don't need to have, you wouldn't have to purchase or store a new cadaver. You could just, and you wouldn't have to worry about getting a new one after you've done that procedure once or twice. You could do it as many times as you want. And so the virtual environment offers a lot of potential for simulation and for businesses or for occupations that involve extensive training that's very expensive and time consuming to do in the physical world, we can those can now be offered so far on a limited scale in the virtual environment. And that includes police training too. There's a lot of good simulated programs on the market already today that you can buy that police are already using to help them deal with environments and you can run through the simulation and get the training that you need for a lower cost and you can run the sims as many times as you want. When you're doing scenarios where you have human actors involved, you, you probably get one shot, maybe two, and then you have to call it a day because the, the human participants, they get tired. And we've, we've done this role, we wanna go home. But in a simulated virtual environment, you can run the simulation over and over and over again. So if a police officer wanted to just come in on the weekend or some other time and just practice on their own, they can do that now, all thanks to, uh, to virtual reality, which has really expanded uh, in just the last few years. So it's good to see automobile makers looking for new applications for virtual reality and those go far beyond uh, the realm of, uh, of driving into medicine, law enforcement, and uh, engineering applications as well. And that is expected to and likely will continue over the next few years. The sale of virtual reality headsets has really increased significantly just in the past five years. One company alone, Accenture, purchase 60,000 headsets for their employees, 60,000, because they want all of their employees to be able to access a virtual environment for both training and operations. And that's an indication that companies who do business at scale, which is to say large corporations, are betting on virtual reality as a future piece of technology that will be incorporated into their long-term business model. So it's possible in some fields of, of business and in some enterprises, you'll see virtual reality headsets become as commonplace as television screens or as computer screens. As the cost continues to go down and as the quality continues to go up, that is the trend of which the virtual reality is currently moving. But the most impressive current technology in 2022 that's coming on the market to move that beyond just sights and sounds is definitely the haptic 
the haptic tech, the haptic gloves you can wear, and also the haptic vest that you can wear. For people who like to play first-person shooter games, you can put on a haptic vest, and if, if your opponent or your enemy in the game shoots you, the haptic vest will give you tactile feedback, which is to say it'll vibrate in exactly the place that you were shot. So it'll simulate the bullet making impact uh, with your body where you're wearing the, uh, the vest. So the vests and gloves that are coming out now are far beyond what they were even in the past uh, few years. Unfortunately, you know, the haptic tech is not really uh, down to the price point where it can be feasible for the typical consumer. The, the gloves that I just that I mentioned earlier that are involved in the, the really good sensory compression, those still go for four or five thousand dollars a pair. Um, so that's that's well beyond the reach of most consumers. But we should remember when virtual reality tech itself first came on the market or first started to come on the market, it was also much, much more expensive than it currently is now. And not everyone could afford to buy it. And today we've seen those prices drop to where most consumers, if they wanted to, can't afford to buy VR tech for, for much less than even a, a gaming console. So the haptic tech is still too expensive, but I expect to see within the next two to three years, you'll be able to buy those gloves and pair them with a wireless headset that will give you the ability to simulate touch while you're using either a game or a training program in your own home. So the underlying idea, I guess, with, <clears throat> with virtual reality, excuse me, is to see the world or experience the world in kind of a new way or in a novel dimension, a new way to experience it. And we, we've had other tools for helping us experience or understand the world that have been around for a very long time, much, much, much older than any, any virtual reality or, or any other electronic communications technology. And that's the, the focus of the book I wanted to briefly talk about this week. And that book is called Language Versus Reality, Why Language is Good for Lawyers and Bad for Scientists by Nick Enfield. This is published by the uh, MIT Press. And basically the argument of the book is that language is or exists mainly for social coordination. It doesn't exist simply to exactly transfer information from person A to person B. And so if we think about that on its face, that it has some pretty profound implications for the world we live in. For example, why does the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church tell his uh, followers that the Ukrainian, when Russian soldiers invade and kill Ukrainians, that they're exhibiting a, and I'm quoting him now, an act of neighborly love? And he's actually said that. Why do we have people who will say that vaccines cause more illness than a virus? Or, or why, do we, why do masks cause the spread of more illnesses than not wearing a mask? In other words, why do we have people who say things that are the complete opposite of reality? Um, and the, uh, the book here sort of gives us some deeper answers into that type of phenomenon, which isn't new. Uh, it's been around a very long time. It's very old. And the author makes the argument that one of the reasons why is that language itself is designed to help us persuade other people to do something and often that that something is what we want them to do. So whereas to distinguish that science has an, a more objective view. We want to objectively describe or understand a phenomenon that we've seen or heard or measured either in the natural world or in a laboratory. Whereas the linguistic tools we have to communicate with each other, with each other are more about persuasion than they are about information. And I think that's an important distinction to make, especially uh, if we look at the world we live in today where communication tools, whether it's radio, television, or the internet, 
have gone sort of into overdrive to try to persuade us all the time about something. Someone's always trying to tell us that we should buy this product or we should vote for this candidate or we should oppose this war or that we should support this cause. And so we're just we're just inundated with constant with a constant bombardment of language that's intended to persuade us to do something or to not do something. And those are very different types of communication than something that wants to simply educate us or to simply provide us with information or raise our awareness or improve our understanding of the world we live in. And so I, I think that's one reason that why this book is a, is a good read. It, it does that in a way. It's, it's By the way, it's not written for um, scholars or for scientists. It's not that it's not difficult to read. And you can follow it along. It's because it, some sometimes the folks that, that you know write books from the MIT Press uh, or, or other leading you know scholarly institutions sometimes they do write books that are very very difficult for the rest of us to read or understand or, or to grasp. So you, you have sometimes you have to be a specialty in that field or in that that science if you want to make any sense out of out of what's being written. But I don't think, at least in my opinion, I don't think that's the case with this book. And I think you can get some good information out of it and maybe learn some new things about. How I question some assumptions we had about you know how language works because it's a very basic thing that we all use every day, right? We communicate. We have to, in order for us to talk to someone else, we have to use language. That's the tool that we're given. Even for folks who, who are unable to hear, or they use sign language, or if you can't see and you use the the braille, you're still communicating via language. We're still breaking down the passing of information into words, and and sentences, and paragraphs, and and narratives. And it's just there's just different ways with which those those paragraphs or words are communicated from one person to another. The author of the book himself, and he he said this in an interview he gave with uh, New Books Network a while back. He actually said he had initially planned to entitle the book "Language Creator and Destroyer," and what he meant by that was simply the ability of our use of language to create either narratives or versions of events that we communicate and those are shared and then accepted by other people. The problem is sometimes we when we do use language to describe things we've seen or heard there's a tendency which is built into language itself to oversimplify what we saw or what we heard and if you think about it it sort of has to be that way because there's no way we can communicate every single thing we've, we see and hear to somebody else who's also busy seeing and hearing their own experiences. So we have to be selective when we use language to describe something that we observe. We can't tell them everything. And so once we go down that road, once we start being selective, then we're choosing, whether consciously or unconsciously, to include certain details and certain pieces of information and to exclude other pieces of information because we may not think they're important, we may not want them to be known, or just subconsciously we may not even realize we're doing it. To us, this wasn't the most important part of whatever story we're trying to tell or whatever information we're trying to relay. And so we simply exclude those those pieces of information from the listener, even though later on it may turn out that those pieces of information were very, very important. So anyway, big picture, I think, takeaway is that, you know, language, and I think the author has a good point, that language shapes our understanding of reality. And that if we know that, that can help us as we go forward into making either more informed or better decisions about what we say ourselves. In other words, how we are using language as, as people um, and how we're communicating with someone else when we know that what we say might, might influence their thoughts 
or lead them in a certain direction. And conversely, we can recognize that when we're hearing that, that when we're, when we're seeing someone, and there's a lot of people out there who are very skilled at exploiting this quality of language, this persuasion, this sort of built-in mechanism of persuasion, they're very good at exploiting that in order to get people to look at a certain thing or to agree with a certain point of view or a certain argument. And oftentimes that can be based on, on emotional appeal or their own personal experience rather than an objective set of facts. And so this is something we can recognize when we're hearing someone, we can recognize that they're trying to use their own tools of communications to drive their own agenda rather than to deal, communicate honestly with us or to just give us uh, an objective appraisal of whatever situation or experience that they went through. Because that's really at the heart of some of the modern dilemmas that we face where we're living in a very information rich world, yet we also know at the same time that some of that or maybe much of that is of questionable validity or of questionable trust. And so we can, this will help us a little bit in our exercise of critical thinking skills, which are very important in a world where you're inundated with messages, where you're inundated with, with data and information, the ability to critically think about it and assess which one of those pieces of information is useful or valid and which ones might be invalid and not only not useful, but harmful. And so we can learn something about that from the way that we use language and, and what language itself is. So I would encourage folks, if you're interested in that, I think it's a good book. I think it's a good read. Uh, again, language versus reality. Why language is good for lawyers and bad for scientists. I think it would help uh, set a, a lot of folks' minds at ease uh, in the modern world, whereas we don't need to necessarily be concerned about uh, a power source, whether it's a, a government or a corporation or um, a wealthy individual or some other group that uses their wealth and power to, to shape the narrative or to spread a certain message we can understand uh, the way in which they're doing that is based on not only on their, their money or their, their positional power, but also on a very basic tool, language itself, which we have some control over. Um, so not all the power is in their hands. And, and I think it's sort of a, a good thing to remember that from time to time. I think it's also important to remember that while science and technology can help people engineer ever more creative and destructive ways to come up with weapons, it also can give us a new tools with which to save lives. Designer inventor Richard Browning uh, of Gravity Industries, you may have seen some of their uh, their jetpacks, <clears throat> excuse me, some of their jetpacks on uh, either YouTube videos or some other clips that are floating around out there of, of an individual who can put on one of these mini packs. They have thrusters attached to their arms and it essentially gives the wearer the ability to fly using a jetpack uh, over fairly good distances. They haven't gotten really long yet, but it can definitely move you over water or up a mountain or over other difficult terrain in a very, very rapid fashion. And while most people looked at these and thought, of course the military was interested in those, that, that was the first video clip I ever saw. It was a military personnel testing those to help them get on board a, uh, another ship really quickly by moving them over water at rapid speeds. Of course, there's military applications and there's a, a natural entertainment and sporting potential applications for technology like the, uh, the jetpack suit, which can allow people to, to fly briefly. But there's a new, a new um, in the United Kingdom, the, North Air, the Great North Air Ambulance Service is also looking at ways to use this technology to help them uh, rescue people who are in danger. Now, right now, the way the jetpack is designed, the, the gravity suit 
you can't pick someone up and carry them with you. So you can't use one of these suits to fly in, pick somebody up, and then fly them back to safety. And, and it's also quite difficult to even carry much equipment with you because the, the jetpack and the thrusters itself are, constitute the bulk of the weight and it's limited to your, your own body weight. However, it would provide paramedics with a way to get to people who are in difficult to reach locations or in distant locations to get there much faster than if they were traveling by a vehicle or if they were walking. You know, there's a lot of folks, not just in the United Kingdom, this, this is applicable the world over, including here in the United States, you have people who live in, in remote areas with very rugged terrain and, and they're hard to get to and it's almost impossible to get an ambulance in there and in some cases it, it's very difficult to get a helicopter in there so what they want to do in Britain is to use this technology to allow paramedics to fly quickly to get quickly reach um, people in need in remote areas in a much shorter time frame and they've already started training at least some paramedics to use that equipment. So in the future, you can not only see medications and supplies delivered by drones, you could also see paramedics using gravity jet suits to fly in and reach people who are would otherwise be in difficult to reach areas. And that's critical if you've got someone who's having an acute medical emergency where seconds or minutes are a matter of life and death. If they had to wait for someone to walk over a, a trail or up a hill or even to take a, a, a four by four four wheel drive vehicle to get to them, the difference could be they don't make it, whereas this person, a paramedic wearing the gravity jet suit, could strap that on, <clears throat> could fly to the person in need, and get there in only a few seconds, as opposed to, to many minutes. So that, that uh, difference in timing is absolutely critical. And I think, it's, I think it's wonderful just to see when new technologies like this are developed, how many different ways it can be used uh, to benefit and to help people. So it's good to remember that when we think about new technologies, it's not always uh, leading us towards some kind of uh, dystopian uh, nightmare. They also have uh, many beneficial applications as well. And I, and I wish them, the folks in Great Britain that are using this, nothing but success. And if they are successful, I hope that that, that uh, style of uh, delivery, getting uh, emergency medical personnel or even emergency responders into difficult places using the jet suit is something that can be replicated the world over. And speaking of technologies and innovative approaches that can be used the world over, in the city of Skellefteå, which is in Sweden, there's a 20-story building called the Sarah Cultural Center, which was named after a Swedish author that just opened uh, last September. And this uh, is now the second tallest wooden structure in the world. It's specifically designed not only to be uh, less environmentally damaging in the construction, but also to help absorb carbon from its construction material over the course of its lifetime. And which is, you can say, for folks who are in the, uh, the standard construction business, according to the United Nations, the uh, production of cement is one of the largest single industrial emitters of CO2 in the world, whereas wood actually sequesters carbon dioxide. So it binds it from the atmosphere and, and stores it for good. So that's sort of the thinking behind this particular structure is that we can build something that's not only more environmentally friendly in construction, but also can help take help reduce the carbon footprint over the course of its lifetime simply by, by standing there and being around. But of course, this particular building, uh, it actually doesn't stop there. According to the designers, there's also an AI system which helps the skyscraper use its energy more smartly and even distribute excess energy. It also has uh, solar panels and large storage uh, facilities in the, in the uh, building's basement. 
but it can also help the uh, building through the AI system make intelligent, more efficient energy use decisions, and then it can supply excess to its neighbors. So it's really a pretty uh, impressive idea. And so if you, if you sort of took that idea and extended it out to where its creators would like it to ultimately go, you could imagine an entire city constructed that way, which would be more energy efficient and able to capture carbon um, at the same time. That's not to say that uh, anyone's just going to do away with traditional construction methods. I, I don't think anyone would believe that. But there, it just goes to show you that when you, when you innovate and when you think and when you use basic scientific principles and sort of try something in a new way, uh, it is possible to uh, take steps towards building uh, a world that's a little bit more renewable, a little bit more sustainable, and a little bit more friendly uh, to the environment. When folks hear that, they usually think um, that the people who want that are, are advocating some kind of immediate and total break from the way that things are now, or that we should just immediately discard the, the current processes that allow us to have access to modern life. I don't think that's really true. I think that folks who support these just want to take more steps and sort of move us uh, in a new direction. That will be my approach. It, it has to be a gentle, step-by-step, -step, you know, long-term kind of pursuit. We're not just going to tomorrow stop using energy, and we're not just going to, by five years from now, be able to build all buildings in a, in a way that they've done here in Sweden. But it's an important model that we can use that may be improved upon or that may be shared in other places that can help us uh, move a little bit more towards a sustainable future. And I just think it's, it's neat that folks not only came up with the idea, but they actually had not only community, but also their government uh, supporting them to, to complete the project and to be able to construct a, a building of this size, because it's a good size structure. And obviously, the builders of that recognize that you can't make the entire thing out of wood just for engineering and, and physics reasons, so they, they grant that. But a 20-story building, uh, there's nothing to sneeze at. That, that's still a pretty significant structure. So I would just say, you know, hats off to the folks in Sweden for coming up with that uh, particular innovation and showing the world uh, maybe a, a new, more innovative way to do uh, building construction. And finally this week, some good news from the University of California at San Diego where researchers believe they are on, the, on their way to discovering, or developing rather, an opioid-free way to treat chronic pain. Whereas today, a lot of people who have chronic pain, whether it's back pain or any other type of long-term pain that they suffer, a lot of people in those conditions are prescribed medications, including opioids, to help them tolerate or, or dull the pain. But these researchers have come up with a way they think could lead to a treatment that would make that unnecessary by simply switching off the gene and some of the genes that actually are involved in the sensing of pain itself. So what the therapy would ultimately do, although it's still very early on and still in the developmental stages, it's only being tested on mice at the, at the current time, but ultimately what it could do is allow scientists to simply switch off certain genes which are responsible for allowing us to sense pain, thereby giving the, uh, the person involved the, the same degree of comfort that they would have got, had to get from uh, medicine or an opioid painkiller uh, currently. For those of us who live in the United States and especially in places like Kentucky where I live, there's an ongoing opioid epidemic that's gotten considerably worse during the pandemic and so it would be wonderful if we could find a way to eliminate the need for or at least reduce the need for um, prescription opioids which are in a lot of cases highly addictive 
and lead folks uh, to once they use those to become permanently addicted, which creates its own uh, set of problems, not only for those individuals, but also for their communities, for their states, and ultimately for the country. <clears throat> you know, the United States in specific, or in particular, we're one of the most heavily medicated societies on earth. Per, per capita or per average, uh, Americans take far more medications than any other country in the world. So it's nice that there might be an alternative out there that would allow people who have chronic illnesses that, that create chronic pain to, to get some relief from that without actually having to take any medications or, or any new kinds of medications. So that's something I think that's really, really hopeful for the future. And, and the, the researchers themselves were very, uh, very cautious in presenting their, their findings. They're not saying that this, this type of treatment is going to be available next week or even next year uh, for chronic pain sufferers. But one of the things we have to remember when it comes to uh, the scientific process and research is that new developments and new innovations, uh, they can take a long time to be developed and to become safe and effective. And so it's, it's good to invest in long-term research to develop new approaches to treating pain like this, which could yield benefits uh, for people uh, down the road. It, it's not hard to imagine were uh, scientists able to perfect gene therapy or a similar type of treatment, it could significantly reduce the need for and the production of the opioids which are currently just flooding uh, communities and streets uh, all across the United States. So I, I hope, I wish the researchers there nothing but the best of luck and uh, that sounds like a very promising way to help us find a way not only out of the uh, opioid addiction crisis but also to provide at the same time some relief for those who are uh, chronic pain sufferers. So of course as we head towards the uh, the conclusion here of our 80 minutes around the uh, world that, that's just enough time to provide a, a snapshot of things that are happening that may be of significance both to the country, both to our country and, and to our, our individual lives or businesses or, or all of the above. You know, according to Pew Research, international travel is something that a majority of adults at some point in their life have done. Their numbers tell us that at least 71% of adults have traveled abroad at some point, though at least 27% of Americans have never been outside the country. The Pew data also suggests that of those who have traveled abroad, most only go to one or two countries. And of those who have traveled uh, outside the United States, only 11% of Americans have ever been to 10 or more countries. So I guess I'm, I'm thankful to, to have been able to have the opportunity to travel to more than 10 countries myself. And I'm just thankful that I've had that opportunity and that experience because it really gives you a, a broader perspective on the world. I think Mark Twain wrote something like, uh, broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be obtained by vegetating in one little corner of the world your whole life. And I think that's very true, even, even more true today than it was uh, during the time when he wrote it. And hopefully, with the pandemic at least coming towards the end of its, uh, of its life cycle, although we're not done with it yet, I think the end may be within sight. And so hopefully once that wraps up and we're able to go back to some sort of a norm uh, in terms of travel, we can encourage more people to connect with the world and engage with the, uh, the outside world because what happens out there affects us. It may take a while or it may not be immediately noticeable uh, right away when it happens, but travel abroad uh, is something that changes your life. It changes your perspective, it changes how you see the world, and it changes how you think of things that are happening in the world that maybe before you wouldn't have really thought were much of a big deal, but afterwards you have a, a wholly different perspective on that. And that's something that military service provides uh, a great deal of it. I know a lot of the countries that I visited, 
uh, were during my military service. And of course, some of those, like Iraq, Qatar, and Kuwait, uh, are not those. Especially in the case of Iraq, it's it's very it was very difficult for for anyone to travel to those countries. So not a lot of people have actually been there. But I hope the snapshot is just useful in keeping tabs on things that are going on in the world in order to build awareness. And that's the first step towards understanding. And of course, we can't possibly hope to improve things or find solutions if we don't have understanding, or at least some understanding, of what's going on in the world. So I really appreciate everyone listening. I know there's a lot of conflict in the world. There's a lot of difficulties and challenges. But there's also a spirit of innovation and exploration and discovery that is still very much alive and well. So thanks for listening, everyone, and I hope you have a great day. Take care. Mm -hmm.